Hello and welcome back to Gentle Man, redefining manhood in the 21st century. My name is Arjuna, I'm your host. Today I'm going to be talking about shame. This is a huge topic. I think it's one of the meta topics that affects men, and I think it's at the root of many of the biggest challenges that men face, and is what stands in the way of many men getting more of what they want from their lives. So in this episode, I'm going to be going deep on specifically male shame, where it comes from, how it's reinforced, why it's harming you, and what to do about it. So I think this is a really valuable topic, and if there's one show which I think gets at the heart of many male issues, it's this one. Shame is one of the main constrictions on men, and one of the main ways that male behavior is restricted. So many men feel like they're in a box, or feel like they don't have much room to move around in metaphorically in their lives. Men often feel like there are a handful of modes that they're allowed to be in, a handful of ways that they're allowed to talk or hold their bodies, maybe a narrow set of hobbies or careers that they feel are appropriate for them to pursue. And in general, a very common male experience is feeling guarded and feeling like you have to protect yourself from other people's judgments. And a lot of why men feel guarded in this way is that they've spent their whole lives being shamed. Also, inversely, confronting shame and working with it and working past it is, in my opinion, the single most effective way to get the things that a lot of men want. So whether it's success in dating, success at work and in your career, or in general respect from your peers and from the broader culture in which you live. So what is shame? Let's talk for a little bit about what it actually is. I think we can all relate to how it feels in the body. It's kind of this mixture of embarrassment and self-loathing. One of the things I really want to highlight about shame is that it's all about comparison. So whenever someone is being shamed, there's a certain standard which is being enforced, and they're being compared to that standard in a negative way. And oftentimes, two of the main aspects that come up in shame is either a feeling of being not enough or a feeling of being too much. So for example, a lot of us might get shamed by our parents for not performing very well in school. That's an example of not enoughness. A lot of men get shamed for being too loud or too rambunctious when they're children. That's a case of being too much. But there are so many ways in which this not enoughness and too muchness plays out in culture. And a lot of them are more subtle or a little bit more difficult to pinpoint, or maybe they're kind of moving targets. And one of the things that I want to highlight is that shame often comes in from a very early age. The first people who shame us are often our parents and our siblings and our family members, people who know us right from the get-go. And a lot of it comes in before we even have a full cognition and certainly before our memories come online. And unfortunately, what this means is that a lot of times we will internalize a feeling of shame from certain behaviors and we may not even remember that when we grow up. And so it's a very common experience for anyone to find themselves in a situation where they're feeling shame and to have it be kind of autonomic, this kind of automatic response that just comes up in a certain situation. 
rationally or logically, we might not even really know why it comes up. And we might not even explicitly notice it. Like maybe we feel really uncomfortable, but our, our frontal lobe, the part of our brain that's more responsible for kind of focused cognition, might not even fully be able to recognize that shame is the emotion that we're experiencing. So the main takeaway here is that shame gets in early and it sticks around. It's one of the reasons why shame is such a damaging aspect of the psyche. And at this point, I want to reiterate a distinction that I've made in the past between what I would call healthy shame, earned shame, versus toxic shame. So there are certain kinds of shame which are predominantly self-enforced. They come from us examining our own behaviors and comparing those to our own morality. In some cases, we also receive healthy shame from other people, but that one's a little more slippery. If you're being directly shamed by someone, a lot of the time it's a projection or a reflection of their own trauma or their own shame. So keep an eye on that. But there are times when people hold us accountable to an ethic that we ourselves hold. They remind us that we have deviated from our own values, and that can also be a healthy shaming coming from someone else. Typically, though, if somebody else is shaming you, and especially if they're really making you feel bad, if they're really digging into you and making you feel terrible about something, then even if they're highlighting something that you need to examine in yourself, they might still be doing it in a very toxic way. So again, healthy earned shame is when you've done something which violates either a core principle that you hold or a core principle that people in your family or your community hold that you agree with, that you aspire to. And it's important to experience some amount of healthy shame in our lifetimes. This is how we grow. This is how we get better. This is how we learn how to not harm other people. This is how we continue to move in a more pro-social direction. So now let's talk about toxic shame. Unfortunately, toxic shame is the majority of the shame that most of us feel. And it's so pervasive in every culture all around the world. Toxic shame is basically the emotion that comes from a variety of different abusive behaviors. So toxic shame is typically cemented by someone outside of us making an unfavorable comparison to some unrealistic or unfair standard. So a simple example of this might be you have a mean older sibling when you're a young child, and let's say you're a boy who really likes a dress that your sister has and you want to put it on. So you maybe you're a four-year-old boy and you put on this cute dress of your sister's and then maybe your mean older brother comes in and points at you and says, what a girl, what a sissy, look at that baby wearing that dress, you look so gay, quit being such a girl. In this scenario, the boy is being confronted by a gender norm and by a standard which is fundamentally unhealthy and toxic. And that standard is being reinforced by someone that we care about, someone whose esteem and whose opinion really matters to us. And so what's going to happen is when a scenario like that comes up again, if we find ourselves maybe later on in our lives, we're out shopping, or maybe we're even just watching someone else, you know, maybe someone in a movie, right? A man's wearing women's clothes or something like that. We'll have this feeling of shame come up. It's kind of hot embarrassment, self-consciousness, self-loathing, feeling wrong somehow. And so what I want to highlight is that toxic shame is always coming from outside of us. It always starts with somebody else bullying us or being mean to us or comparing us disfavorably to some ethic that they hold or some standard that they want to hold you to. 
Toxic shame is never healthy, it's never warranted, and it always, when people are enforcing toxic shame, it is always themselves coming from a place of shame or bullying or insecurity of some kind, what maybe wanting to prove themselves in some way. So toxic shame is rampant around the world. Toxic shame doesn't care about your identity, it doesn't care about your social class, it doesn't care about your religion. It's one of the most uniformly applied negative human experiences, and although there are definitely certain identifiers in any culture that will make you a more likely target for toxic shame, everybody deals with it, and everyone has to contend with it in some amount growing up. I want to highlight that in particular, gender norms are mainly enforced through shame. So I gave the example earlier of a boy wearing girls' clothing and getting shamed for it, and really the examples are rampant regardless of your gender. Boys will often get shamed for feeling emotional, they'll often get shamed for being sweet and sensitive, they'll often get shamed if they would rather play with a doll or play with flowers as opposed to playing with a weapon, playing sticks and stones, playing war games, stuff like that. Conversely, women are often shamed in their childhoods for being assertive, for taking up space, for wanting to operate in spaces that are traditionally reserved for men, for wanting to have a deeper or richer or more overt connection with their sexualities. Sex and sexuality in general are really enshrouded in shame for people of all genders. And then, of course, if you're queer or trans or non-binary, anything outside of the common gender binary that most cultures hold dear, then you're going to be the target of just endless toxic shame. Basically, at that point, no part of your body or your life or your psyche or your decisions is going to be safe from somebody's toxic shaming. This is one of the main reasons we see such a high suicide rate in, for example, trans people and queer people in general, is that they just receive so much toxic shaming on a daily basis. Basis. So what I want to underscore here is that shaming is one of the main ways that social order is enforced and maintained. So regardless of what the culture is, whether it's the culture at home in your family, the broader culture of the country in which you live, shame is one of the most frequently used tactics for dissuading people from doing things or exhibiting behaviors or having their own ideas about things. Unfortunately, shame is also one of the most uncomfortable feelings to have, and toxic shame is really at the root of some of the most difficult emotions a person can experience. So feeling unloved or unlovable is typically a result of toxic shame. Because, for example, a very common pattern we experience with our parents is when we're very young children, again, basically any time after we come out of the womb, we're often incredibly needy and we also haven't yet been established in the behavioral norms of our culture. And so what this means is that we're constantly reaching out to our parents, basically nagging our parents to give us the love and the attention and the support that we need. And we're also messing up a lot. We're breaking things, we're throwing up on people, we're ruining stuff, we're walking in on our parents while they're having sex, we're saying things to our parents' friends that our parents end up being mortified about, divulging all the secrets, you know, all that kind of stuff. Kids have a talent for kind of putting their foot in it and pointing to whatever elephant is in the room. It's actually one of the roles that kids play in society. That's why in the story of the emperor's new clothes, it's actually a child who points out that the emperor is naked. This is the perspective that children bring, and it's often quite confronting. 
However, the challenge of this is that few parents are really up to the task of raising their children in a compassionate enough way and in a wise enough way to not end up having to control a lot of their behavior through toxic shaming. So parents will often resort to shaming when they either don't have other tools to try to corral their children's behaviors, or maybe when they just don't have the emotional bandwidth to meet their children in a more compassionate way. So even if you are a parent who is generally emotionally intelligent and who has an ethic of wanting to raise your children in a kind and loving way, you might just be exhausted after a long day of work and feeling overwhelmed by your kids' omnipresent needs, and you may resort to shaming your children to try to get them in line especially if it follows a patterning that you yourself were raised with. You might find yourself falling back into those behaviors unconsciously when you're under duress. So this is an unhealthy cycle that perpetuates through the generations. And unfortunately, as very young children, we often don't have the tools or the perspective to really understand where our parents are coming from when they're talking to us. And so if our parent, for example, is short with us or ignoring us or telling us to go away or being critical of us after a long day of work, the parent's experience in that moment might be, oh my god, I just need some time alone, or you've asked me that same question a hundred times and I'm tired of answering it. It might be something relatively minor, a moment that just comes and goes in the life of that parent as they're trying to regulate their own emotions and their own nervous system in their stressful life. But for a young child, that moment can be completely reality shifting. A child might experience that moment as thinking, my parent doesn't love me anymore. And love is our deepest need and our deepest desire and our deepest survival tactic. As very social creatures, we always have in the back of our mind that if we're not loved, we might be abandoned and that that abandonment might lead to death. And so it's not an exaggeration to say that a young child in that moment might actually worry that they're going to die. And they might internalize sometimes on a very unconscious level, that if they display those kind of behaviors again, they're going to return to this deathly feeling. And this is the reason that so many of us grow up with such deep toxic shame, and also the reason in general that many of us struggle with needing to feel loved, or struggle with feeling insufficiently loved, or feeling like we have a lack of love, or a host of other self-esteem issues that come up as a result of not feeling like we deserve love. So as children, we're very sensitive and we often internalize an inaccurate or just flagrantly wrong message from the feedback that we're getting from our parents. Now, sadly, the shaming doesn't end here. In fact, this is only the beginning of a lifetime of shaming that we will have reinforced from culture at large. So once our parents are done shaming us, the next level is usually our siblings. Shaming is one of the most common behaviors among siblings because it's a way for siblings to exert power over each other and a way for siblings to affect each other's behavior. If a child sees one of their siblings doing something they don't like or perhaps doing something they feel like they could exert power over them for doing, then a child will often fulfill their need to feel bigger, to feel stronger, to feel better about themselves by shaming their sibling. And then, of course, the moment you go to school or any other environment in which you're surrounded by peers who are strangers to you, all bets are off. You know, countless articles have been written and countless studies have been made about bullying. And shame is one of the main tactics that bullies use to exert their power over their victims. 
So once you leave the house as a child, you are walking into a veritable minefield of hostile kids your age and older, and oftentimes even other adults, teachers, mentors, role models, who it turns out really don't have your best interests at heart, and who will end up shaming you to control your behavior. Now, adults who are kind and wise and maybe compassionate, who've done some amount of self-reflection, may abstain from this. But that's a pretty high bar that a lot of people don't reach. And so you may even end up in a situation where you have a teacher or a leader in your community, maybe someone in your congregation who you look up to, who ends up also employing shame, either under the mantle of teaching you, or maybe just to play out some little mean dynamic that they're harboring for their own reasons. There are an unfortunate amount of people wandering the world looking for other people to take their own internalized shame out on. So this is unfortunately why it's still very common to see, for example, teachers using shame as a way of controlling the kids to which they are entrusted. And in general, it's a common tactic that people will resort to if they start to feel out of control or threatened or afraid. So maybe when plan A of being a more reasonable person didn't work, then people will resort to shame as plan B. to talk for a moment about role models and public figures, because I feel like there has been a particularly vitriolic media climate in the last decade or so, led by people such as Donald Trump, Jordan Peterson, Tucker Carlson, Ben Shapiro. There are a lot of people in the media who will use shame as a tactic to either attack people or try to enforce social change, or even sometimes just to create outrage. You'll have social commentators such as Joe Rogan directing shame at various people as a way of kind of reestablishing their own authority or just galvanizing their listenership. Because shame hits upon the fear center in a person, it's a very effective tool to use to coerce people to control their behavior, to implant your ideas in their minds. And so very persuasive public figures and public speakers will often employ shame as a way of getting people on their side or a way of increasing their notoriety. It's a lot easier to shock someone into respecting you or paying attention to you than it is to reel them in gently through kindness or compassion. This is unfortunately the way that our brain stems are configured. We respond first to things that we are afraid of, and only later does our brain kind of slow down and slow the system enough to prioritize positive feelings like love and acceptance and compassion. So this is why fear tactics are so effective in controlling populations of people. And this is true both on the interpersonal level, the micro, and also the macro level of culture at large. So we go to school and we get shamed. And tragically, this is where we see the roots planted for a lot of the school shootings that happen. So kids themselves will go to school. They'll get bullied. They'll get shamed. 
maybe this triggers some of their own shame responses that they learned earlier from their parents and their family members. And this will create a negative feedback loop inside them, which eventually becomes so strong that they are driven to exact revenge on the people that they perceived harmed them. And so I think it's no surprise that we see these revenge killing sprees happen in schools because shaming and bullying is so rampant in schools. And so these predominantly young white men will have a feeling of being fed up with being shamed and downtrodden, and they'll want to get even. So I think the link between shame and mass shooting is very clear, and it's a central factor in the discussion about how to address and hopefully stop events like this from happening in the future. Mass shooters also often cite rejection, especially rejection from potential romantic partners and women in particular as a cause of their killing or a motivation for the killing. And this gets me to my next point, which is a next stage of shame that we'll often encounter is when we start dating, when we begin our romantic and sexual lives. So much shame shows up in this area. And so rejection might bring up feelings of shame that we have from our early childhood when maybe one or both of our parents didn't want to spend time with us or essentially rejected our advances for love. And so when we, at a later stage in our life, when we're recreating that pattern, we're reaching out to somebody for love and affection and intimacy. And then if they reject us, it might trigger that same feeling of shame that we internalized as a young child. So this is an unfortunately common scenario where men's romantic or sexual adventures will get rejected, then they'll go into a shame spiral, and then if they have a predisposition towards violence, they might try to seek revenge through violent means. Shame will also often show up in the context of romantic relationships as well. And this is often because we'll find ourselves confronted by situations in which our expectations aren't met, or maybe triggered by our partner's behaviors. And because romantic relationships deal with a very vulnerable part of us, we're often more likely to get triggered in those deepest and most wounded parts of ourselves. So this is the next wave of shaming that we might encounter once we start dating. I'll share a couple of stories from my own experience. So one of my first girlfriends from high school would sometimes shame me around my sexual inexperience. It was my first time interacting with someone else in a sexual way, and I had a lot to learn. And so she sometimes wasn't satisfied with my so-called performance. And this is the first time in my life that I encountered male performance anxiety. Now, unfortunately, that's not the last time that I've encountered that in my relationships, both being directed at me from my partner or coming up internally for myself, feeling a sense of judgment about how I'm performing, or even just feeling a pressure to perform. This is unfortunately reinforced in our culture. So performance anxiety is a huge source of shame. And oftentimes we don't even need to be shamed by someone else to start shaming ourselves around it. You might have a sexual partner who's feeling fine about what you're doing, but if you're not measuring up to your own internal litmus test or maybe the external cultural litmus test for how you're supposed to be performing in the bedroom, then you may still end up shaming yourself. Another pattern that I've run into with women partners is I've had a couple of partners get triggered if they felt like they weren't turning me on enough, or if they had their own shame around feeling desirable, for example, or if they felt sexually rejected by me. I've seen that come up in a number of women that I've dated. Especially if you're a man that bucks the narrative that men always want sex, you may end up getting confronted by women who might internalize that as them not being good enough. 
I also had another partner in my early 20s dispense a lot of shaming to me around my interests, my hobbies. I've always been a bit nerdy. I've always been into fantasy stuff, video games, stuff like that. And I had a girlfriend who I think felt some jealousy around that, felt jealousy around the time that I spent doing those things, and also maybe some judgment around it because she herself wasn't interested in that kind of stuff. These are just a few examples of how shaming can come up in intimate romantic relationships and is a next wave of shaming that we might encounter. And then, of course, when we get to college, for example, or if we go into the workplace, these are other areas in which we might encounter new kinds and styles of shame. For example, we'll often get shamed in the workplace if we're not being productive enough, if we're asking for too much, if we're not doing our jobs in the way that our superiors want us to. Or again, when we encounter our own internalized shame when we're evaluating our performance. So I encountered what was to me a surprising amount of internal shame when I entered the workforce. I found myself to be very self-critical about my work. And anytime I made a stupid mistake or delivered a standard of work that was below what I felt like I should be able to do, I experienced a surprising amount of shame around that. And I actually had to work on that very intentionally in therapy for a while to really get around that. There were periods of my work life where I would feel a crippling shame when I made some even minor mistake. And sometimes it would derail my whole day. I would just be unproductive after that because I couldn't recover from the self-imposed shame that had come up as a result of having made that mistake. And it even could have been something as simple as just, whoops, sending an email that wasn't complete, right? I was in the middle of writing it and I just hit the wrong keyboard shortcut and I sent the email. Or making some other totally normal and understandable mistake like that. Even something as small as that could be enough to just send me into a shame spiral that would derail my entire day. So shame can really show up in any environment, especially if it's an environment that's heavy on interaction with other people. And though all of these different branches connect back to the same trunk of shame, we often have to tackle shame anew and continue learning the lessons of how to work through shame in each of these different branches, in each of the different shades and parts of our life that it may show up. So shame is a really core, fundamental human experience, and it has to be continually confronted throughout the different stages of our lives and the different environments in which it comes up. Now I'm quickly going to cover a number of other places where shame shows up, just to get them into the conversation and to get you thinking about them. So a lot of shaming norms are actually established and become enshrined in culture through the media. So movies are a classic example. A lot of bullying that happens in schools comes from kids recreating stuff that they've seen in movies. And so you'll get this toxic spiral of a kid will see someone bullying someone in a movie, and then they'll come back to school and they'll start bullying a kid in that same way. And then film directors will, in an effort to make their movies realistic or have some kind of dramatic tension perhaps, they'll observe and recodify that same bullying into a movie which will then teach another generation of kids how to do that. So this is one of the ways in which the media in its attempt to depict reality will actually create reality. This is a really pervasive and harmful thing that happens in so many different aspects of culture. Music is another example. A lot of popular music will either subtly or overtly shame men. Hip-hop in particular in the contemporary era has a common theme of men shaming their rivals or their perceived contemporaries in an effort to elevate their own esteem. But you also see it in rock music. Rock music often has some pretty 
toxic shaming patterns, and no musical genre that has lyrics is devoid of shaming or the potential for shaming. Or for example, devoid of the reinforcing of commonly enforced gender norms. Another place you see shame showing up often is in pornography, and through sex in general. Many cultures around the world, especially those based in Judeo-Christian cosmologies, have a deeply held shame around sex and sexuality, and that shame really pervades every aspect of the culture. And one of the ways in which this shows up is in abusive sex norms, which are often portrayed in and reinforced in pornography, in much the same way that, for example, bullying norms are portrayed and reinforced in school movies, or in the way that violence is portrayed and reinforced in action movies. So men getting sexual pleasure from shaming women is a really common pornography trope that you'll see. And it really helps to implant and reinforce some of the more violent and malignant misogynistic ideals. A side note about sex as well, a lot of kinks are established in and come from shame. And this by no means has to be a negative thing. In fact, I think some people might actually do some of their healthiest exploration and working with shame through their kinks and through sexual exploration in general. So it can actually end up being a very positive thing. But this is another area where, interestingly, it's just kind of the way the human psyche works, that shame and arousal can often be linked. Sex and sexuality in general is often a place where the unexamined, perhaps wounded, perhaps just vulnerable parts of ourselves will show up, and sometimes in very surprising ways, and in ways that might feel kind of incongruous. Men are also often shamed for our bodies, and I actually did an episode on this. It was called Male Body Dysmorphia, It Probably Affects You. I'll link to that in the show notes, and I highly recommend that you check that podcast episode out as well. I go into quite a lot of detail about the different ways in which men get fixated on their bodies. But as a quick survey of this, as men were often shamed for either being overweight or being too thin, being too short, being bald for our penis size, and in a number of other ways. So again, highly recommend you go check out that episode. As men, we're also often shamed if we're not successful and making money. So this is part of the expectation placed on men, and it really comes back to base cultural values. What are we rewarded for? What are we expected to do? What are the non-negotiable aspects of being a man? There's one final aspect of male shame which is really large and really important that I want to cover, and that is the fundamental existential shame around even being a man in the first place. Because of the long history of male violence and the various violences and inequalities that have come from male-dominant culture, a lot of men either consciously or unconsciously grow up with this deep and perhaps unexamined shame around even being a man to begin with. I think a lot of the current hemming and hawing in public discourse about the role of men, these observations around especially how generations of young men are growing up feeling very confused about their manhood, and the appeals to these groups of men happening by various people and organizations, these are all picking up on and centered around this concept of men currently feeling a deep shame around manhood. A lot of recruitment that is happening right now, for example, to encourage disenfranchised young men to join the alt-right is picking up on this sense of existential worry or being existentially lost around manhood and is exploiting this. Some loudly defiant voices have also risen up in support of a return to a more traditionally perceived concept of masculinity 
with Andrew Tate being the foremost example. So Andrew Tate has sensed and tapped into this media climate of and this cultural climate of men feeling confused and disempowered. And his response has been to kind of stoke the flames of or perhaps make an argument to fall back on some notion of how manhood used to be or how manhood should be, which when it's examined is really a hyper-misogynistic, hyper-materialistic, evolutionarily misguided vision of what manhood should be. And the success of people like Andrew Tate has shown a dismaying light on the truth of how hungry a lot of young men especially are to feel empowered, to feel like they have direction, to feel like their culture has a playbook for them, to feel like there is a game that has rules they can understand and fit into. I also see Andrew Tate as exploiting the shock factor in order to grow his following. So he has rightly ascertained that one of the easiest ways to gain notoriety on the internet is to say unapologetically shocking things. And this is a tactic that has been especially effective with his target audience, which is young men. So that has unfortunately really turned up the dials on his message. And the success of this approach has really galvanized him to double down and continue making successively more and more alarming assertions. So this whole current cultural climate, and in some ways even global climate, has been one of the main factors that has encouraged me to use whatever platform I can create to address this same feeling of confusion and disenfranchisement in a different way. So it's really at the heart of what I'm doing here. If you've been enjoying the Gentleman podcast, I'd like to ask you for your help. Growing a community and an online presence takes a lot of work. And it takes a lot of participation from listeners such as yourself to really help things take off. So if you value this show and it has been meaningful in your life, I would really appreciate it if you could help me out by doing one of the following. Leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen. That's a huge help as it helps the podcast rise in rankings and it also helps other people discover the podcast. Recommending it via word of mouth to your friends and family is another massive way that you can help this podcast grow following on social media and liking the content and maybe leaving a comment is another great way to support gentleman podcast is our instagram handle you can also find us on youtube at gentleman podcast three words watching and liking the videos on youtube is another great way that you can help the algorithm to know that this is valuable content i really appreciate your help and your support it's one of the things that will help me to keep making this content and to keep making it better as well thank you all right, so that was a lot of talk about the challenge of shame, the problem of shame, the experience of shame. And I want to make sure I devote some time to actually working with shame and providing some resources for men to address their shame and hopefully over time understand and lessen their experience of their own shame. So the first thing that I want to encourage in working with shame is simply noticing it. So much of change starts with mindfulness and shame is no different. So my first recommendation is simply to try to notice shame when it's coming up for you. First of all, start paying attention to the situations or the thoughts or the ideas or the experiences that actually bring up shame for you. That's the first thing is to notice how and when it's coming up. And then I also want for you to notice how it feels. What is the sensation in the body? Where does it live? Does it increase your heart rate? Does it make your face feel hot? Do you feel dread in the pits of your stomach? What is the actual physical sensation? 
This is a really key part of addressing any psycho-emotional reaction in the body, is localizing it and developing a deeper clarity around what is actually happening in your body. Another thing I want to recommend is to ask yourself how the shame that is coming up for you is restricting your life and your expression. What is the shame preventing you from doing that you would actually like to do? Is it preventing you from saying something that's on your mind? Is it preventing you from pursuing an activity or a hobby that you would otherwise like to do? Is it preventing you from listening to music? Short personal anecdote, I have an older brother who was very critical of me in my childhood, and he had very strong ideas about how a lot of things should be and how I should be. He often shamed me throughout my life around the music that I liked, if it was different than what he liked. And I actually heard his critical voice in my head when I was picking the music that I wanted to listen to or looking for new music or maybe if someone was playing me something they liked that they thought that I might like. I would repeatedly come up against his critical voice and I had to really consciously work to move outside of that to give myself the permission to like what I liked. And I remember one day that realization hit me really hard. It was kind of a random moment. I was listening to some music on my headphones and I stepped onto a bus, I was taking the bus downtown, and a song came on, and I remember thinking reflexively, oh, my brother wouldn't like that song. And all of a sudden, I felt the pain of that. I felt how sad it was that instead of simply listening to this music that I liked, that was making me feel really good, I was thinking about how somebody else would think about it, and allowing that to influence my experience of it. And it was such a painful moment that I actually started crying, because I was finally able to really realize and see clearly how affected I had been and how much of my life had been altered as a result of that negative voice that I was carrying around with me. So that's just one example of how this can come up and how you can work with it, how you can think about it and respond to it and hopefully use that experience to expand what you're able to do. Because that's really what we're working towards here, helping men to realize how shame is holding them back and to learn healthy methods for working with that. So mindfulness is where we start. The next thing I would recommend is something I recommend on almost every podcast, it seems, and that is going to therapy. So mental health professionals will have been trained in some way to work with shame. It's such a foundational, challenging human experience. Just about any therapist or social worker is going to be able to help you start to examine it and work with it. And there are a lot of good tools for addressing it. Shame doesn't have to be a life sentence. I actually think one of the beautiful things about shame is that it's one of the more malleable, difficult emotions or trauma responses that a person can have. It can be very empowering to identify and work through shame challenges and to replace what used to be negative reinforcement with positive reinforcement. It can really bring a new excitement around life and a new realization of all the territory that we previously weren't able to inhabit that we now are able to. So, talk to a therapist. Tell them you want to work with shame. I think it'll be a really fruitful conversation. Now I want to talk about one of the preeminent thinkers on shame at the moment, who is Brene Brown. She has exploded into the global awareness in the last 10 years or so, and rightly so. She has been centering shame as an experience and doing a lot of research on it, and she's written a lot of really great books about it. Three books of hers that I have actually read and benefited from are Daring Greatly, The Power of Vulnerability, and the gifts of imperfection. 
but she has many more than that as well. And she also has just almost limitless videos, interviews, resources on the internet. You don't have to spend a dime to start really taking in the wisdom that Brene Brown has to offer. One of her biggest contributions to the conversation around shame is that she has identified three places where shame lives or three behaviors that allow shame to remain and to flourish. And they are secrecy, silence, and judgment. So a common recipe for how shame flourishes, especially in men, because men tend to follow these behavioral patterns as a result of their conditioning, is that men, when they are experiencing shame, they'll often keep it a secret. They won't tell anyone because telling someone will bring up more shame, right? Now, not only are you dealing with the original shame you had, but now you're dealing with potential shame of someone else judging you and perhaps a worry that that person will turn around and say, oh, yeah, well, you should be ashamed about that. Silence is related to that. Usually when people are being secret about stuff, they're not talking about it. But silence could even also just be maybe you're not writing in your journal about it. Maybe you're not even telling a therapist about it. When you're not addressing it in any way, then the shame has a chance to stack up and multiply and continue its negative reinforcement. Oftentimes we experience shame as this negative voice in our head, which is telling us all kinds of horrible things about ourselves. And if we don't share that voice with someone else, if we don't get an outside perspective on that, we can oftentimes end up really believing what that voice says and allowing it to continue to harm us. And oftentimes when we get someone else's perspective, especially the perspective of someone who cares about us, they can often show us that something that we're worried about is perhaps a lot more common or a lot more forgivable or a lot less big of a deal than we thought it was. And if there's someone who really cares about us, they can often provide us with the love and the validation that we're really needing in that vulnerable moment. So secrecy and silence are so key to address and working with shame. And then judgment is the other part of it where we start to judge ourselves or we fear judgment from other people around our shame. Perhaps we found ourselves judging other people for something, and so when we exhibit that characteristic or that behavior, we'll actually turn that judgment inward on ourselves. And that judgment is really what leads to the abuse of shame, whether it's us shaming other people or us shaming ourselves. So that's an important framework that Brene Brown has contributed to the conversation around shame. I think her work is really crucial and healthy and important, and I highly recommend that you follow up and check it out. The next point that I want to make about working with shame is that I really want to encourage everyone listening to this to be evaluating the relationships that you're in and to be continually seeking healthier relationships. Of course, as one of the commonly thrown around contemporary sayings goes, you are the combination of the five people you spend the most time with. That saying always chafes me a little bit because I think it's a bit reductionistic. But it does contain a truth that the people that we spend the most time around have the most effect on ourselves. And if we find ourselves spending a lot of time around people who are continually judging us and shaming us, then that's a very negative environment to be in, and that will definitely have a harmful effect on our lives. So if you notice that people in your friend group, people in your family, your partner, people you're in romantic relationships with, if they're regularly shaming you, that's an important thing to call out. It's an important thing to identify and maybe talk with your therapist about. Any amount of shaming that we're experiencing regularly in our lives is going to have a really detrimental effect on our mental health and on our emotional well-being, and it's not a good environment to be in. So the first thing I'd recommend you do is mindfulness, start to notice when it's happening, and then to whatever degree you're able to, you have the resources and the courage to do, would be to actually call it out tell that person, hey, I feel like you're shaming me right now and I don't appreciate it. 
Now, if it's a person that you feel very confident you can't have that conversation with, then you might need to take whatever steps are necessary to get that person out of your life. If it's one of your peers at school, you might have to go up the chain. You might have to talk to someone else in a position of authority to try to help you mediate it. If it's a friendship, you might have to walk away from that friendship. If it's a relationship, same thing. Family is harder. We often can't simply cut ties and walk away, but we might actually have to establish boundaries in that case. We might have to tell our family members, I'll continue to talk to you or be in relationship with you, but not if you continue shaming me. So your access to having me in your life will be conditional upon whether you're respecting my desire to not be shamed. So that's a totally healthy and appropriate thing to do and to say. This might also be happening in a work relationship. And if that's the case, you may have to take actions up to and including leaving and getting another job. If speaking with someone directly isn't working or isn't an option, and going to human resources isn't working or isn't an option, then you might actually have to take yourself out of that environment and get a new job. And I know that some of these solutions can sound kind of drastic and life-changing in a very uncomfortable way, but shame is such a malignant and corrosive force in a person's life that it really can't be ignored. If you're regularly experiencing shaming from other people, it will really limit what you're able to do. And so whatever steps you can take to move away from it will have a pretty immediate positive impact in your life. So I can't stress this one enough. Seeking healthier relationships is really one of the main ways, not just to reduce shame in your life, but to improve every area of your life. When you're around people who love you and who support you and who see you for who you are and people who build you up rather than tearing you down, you'll see improvements in basically every area of your life. You'll feel better, you'll enjoy your life more, and you'll have more enthusiasm for your work, for your projects, for everything. So that's a big one. My next tip is to start pushing your own shame boundaries. And what I mean is once we've worked to lower the amount of shame that's coming in from other people, we also have to examine the internalized shame we have, which is continuing to limit what we do. If you've removed an external shaming force, you might still find yourself limited by an internal shaming force. It can take a very different kind of courage to work with our internal blocks. And this really gets to the core of what shame is. If other people are shaming us, but we're not actually experiencing the shame, then it has very little impact. We just see it as an annoyance. We just think, oh, that person's stupid. Oh, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. It's when our own internal narratives get caught up in that shame and they then start to talk to us negatively and limit our behaviors. That's when shame becomes really malignant. And so that's why the internal work is so important. And again, a therapist will really be able to help you outline some great strategies for how to start to do this. But one of my recommendations would be to just start gently pushing your own shame boundaries. So I'll give you an example of this. I've wanted to wear a wider variety of clothes as time has gone on in my adult life. And people might describe what I'm doing sometimes as cross-dressing or wearing women's clothes, for example. 
But in a lot of cases, I don't even think of it like that. There are a lot of clothes I wear which just simply wouldn't be considered normal man clothes. Things like leggings, perhaps, or things like a sweater that comes down further below the waist than a lot of men's sweaters do. Stuff like this, clothing which people might describe as being more gender fluid. So I've had a desire around this for many years of my life, and it was really unconscious for a long time. It kind of went underground, and it has resurfaced in recent years. And I found myself wanting to increasingly change what I was wearing, but I came up pretty hard against my own internalized shame around that. I found myself coming up against cultural gender norms around what men wear. And the way that I had to work with that over time was that I had to push my boundaries. It starts with conceptually viewing clothing differently, looking at clothes I wouldn't ordinarily have worn and thinking, I could wear that if I wanted to. For me, that was important, just laying this conceptual groundwork that any piece of clothing I look at is something that I could consider wearing whether or not I liked it. The next question was, do I like it? And if I do like something, then I could start to think about buying it, or at least trying it on, wearing it. And so that's where I had to start, was just simply thinking about it, noticing how I felt, noticing what my response was. If I looked at a piece of clothing and I had something move in me, right? We all know that feeling of maybe you see someone wearing a pair of shoes you want or having a cool backpack or a bag or a shirt that you really like. And you think, ooh, mm. you know, maybe you think that looks really good on that person. Or you think maybe I'd like to have one of those. So I started to just notice when that feeling came up for me. I remember one time in particular, I was on Facebook, I was just scrolling like you do, and I saw an advertisement for this really cute dress. And I remember my first thought was, oh, I love that, that's really cute. And then my second thought was, I would like to wear that. The third thought that happened for me was, but I can't because I'm a man. And then the fourth thought was, wait, I get to decide what I want. And then I bought it, and now I wear it. But I needed to really engage in each step of that thought process and do some work on it before I was able to make that leap. Once I got better at identifying the stuff that I'd like to wear that I hadn't been allowing myself to wear, I started to acquire some of this clothing and the next barrier to me was actually wearing it. And I remember for the first while, first number of months, maybe even a couple of years, when I would start to wear so-called women's clothing in public, I would feel so vulnerable leaving the house. I would feel so self-conscious. I would worry that people would literally point and laugh. I'd worry that I was going to get harassed. I would worry that people would look at me and silently judge me. There was even a small part of me that was worried I might get beaten up or assaulted or killed. That is unfortunately a precedented response to stuff like this. So I really had to walk that edge for a while and work through some of that fear. Now, I'm fortunate to live in a place which is fairly tolerant of people wearing pretty much whatever they want, actually. And so my experience, by and large, has been neutral or positive in terms of how people have responded to it. But it took me a lot of pushing that edge to start to feel really comfortable doing it. And now I've gotten to a place where it actually feels very natural. I've reached that coveted moment when I'll just wear something because I want to. I don't think about it any more than that. It's just my clothes. I leave the house and I don't worry about it. So that's an example of how I've gone through an expansion arc in my shaming that has allowed me to express myself more and enjoy my life more than I was before. 
So I'm always on this show encouraging you to take these baby steps, to take these one degree more uncomfortable than you're used to steps towards growing what you're able to do and experience. And of course, over time, you start taking these baby steps and then you'll look back after time and notice that you've actually covered a lot of distance. You'll notice that a process that started small has actually closed a distance that you wanted to close and now you're suddenly in a place that you had imagined yourself being. And sometimes it can actually end up being easier than you thought it would be. And sometimes the response might actually end up being a lot more positive than you thought it would be. Recently, for the first time in my life, I had somebody compliment my style and someone say, Arjuna, you have such a unique style. I love what you're doing. And you have no idea how much that comment meant to me because it made me realize that my whole life I had cared about that, but I just hadn't really dared to do anything about it. And I had always had some amount of internalized shame around even wanting to be stylish in the first place. And then additional shame around the stuff that I wanted to wear that I thought was cool and stylish. And so it was really healing for me to to get that feedback. So the final thing I want to say about working with shame is that we also need to catch ourselves when we're shaming other people. Not only do we need to stop those negative internal voices that we have, but we also need to stop judging and shaming other people as well. It's going to be really hard for us to move out of a shaming experience if we ourselves are engaging in shaming other people. So I want you to start to notice when you're having what I would describe as uncharitable or unhealthy judgments of other people. Some judgments are important, like you observe a behavior in someone that you really know you don't want in your life, or you find yourself feeling really unsafe or uncomfortable around someone. Those kind of judgments are important survival tactics, so we need to hang on to those. But I'm talking about the judgments where we look at someone and we envy them so we judge them. Or we think someone is doing or behaving or into something that's stupid and then we judge them. These judgments which are really petty and insecure and which don't serve any purpose except just to put more negativity into the world. So these are the kind of thoughts and behaviors that we're trying to notice and then curtail. And once you start doing this, you'll notice there's this funny thing where when you start to cut down the negativity that you're putting into the world, you'll start to notice the negativity that other people are putting into the world, and it will start to really bother you. You'll start to feel annoyed or uncomfortable around overly negative people. I've had this experience of criticism. I've had this experience with complaining. Once I stopped complaining as much, it started to really bother me when other people complained. I've had this experience with pessimism as well. Spending a lot of time around overly pessimistic people or people who constantly want to talk about downer things has felt less comfortable to me when I've spent less time in that space as well. So once you start judging people less and shaming people less, it will especially start to highlight other people in your life who do that, and you will naturally move away from those people. So this has been my treatise on male shame. This is such a broad topic, and I've only scratched the surface of the various ways in which shame shows up and is perpetuated and is harmful. So I really recommend following up about this, talk to your therapist about it, read some books about it, starting with Brene Brown. Talk to people who are close with you about it. Stop shaming other people. Start calling out other people when they're shaming you. And in doing this, you'll be moving towards self-empowerment, and you'll be moving towards a more peaceful world, which supports more people to live the lives that they want to live. 
Thanks for joining me on this episode and I'll catch you next time. Thank you.